Well, we're picking up now with uh, week two um, as we, part two, as we continue to study uh, the London Baptist Confession. I am going to um, recap a few things that we covered last week and uh, we'll jump in today. But just to remind you of what this series is about, we, um, we're going through our confession of faith. It's going to take us through the end of next year. The goal is um, to introduce you to this um, confession. It's a little mini systematic theology. So it covers every major aspect of doctrine. Uh, so um, in and of itself, it's a very profitable study. But the goal is, you know, uh, to know what we believe and why we believe it. And um, so that's, that's what we're going to, I guess, the aim of this series is over the next year. Um, just to recap a few things that we covered last week, so you know that uh, where we're coming from and where we're going. Um, confession of faith expresses our beliefs in writing. And what's its purpose? Why do we do this? Well, to define what it is that we believe and how we relate to other Christians. Uh, to define who is part of our community, the community of faith. For example, our confession is a Trinitarian doctrine. Right? If you're part of the uh, LDS church, so-called church, um, that you know, denies the Trinity, well, this confession kind of defines like, who we are as a community and who they are as a community, and how we're not the same. Uh, confession also uh, serves to unite us with other Christians, uh, not only in the present, but in the past as well. We can look back and say, hey, I'm part of a, a church that stretches back 2,000 years. This is not just um, you know, a, the, my grandfather's church here. This is, uh, I'm part of a faith and practice that stretches all the way back to the time of Christ and even before. A confession of faith creates doctrinal boundaries between, between truth and error. A confession of faith guards against doctrinal disease so that we're not fighting the same battles over and over again. Somebody comes in here, they question the doctrine of the Trinity. They say, well, Jesus Christ was a created being. Uh, well, we don't have to just go back to Scripture and begin, you know, at the very beginning we can point back and say, look, this is our confession. It's building upon the Nicene Creeds, building upon all these other things. And, of course, we don't have to refight those battles from the very beginning. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, continuing with our recap here of what we covered last week, a confession of faith provides us with kind of a theological identity. It gives us, you know, a sense of um, identity and who we are as a church in the broader theological tradition of, the, of the, the historic church. It provides a standard of teaching and preaching um, in this church and for the officers. You know, as I talked about last week, it protects you from me. It formulates an identity of the church that's not just around the pastor. Well, what does the pastor believe? What does the pastor say? And what happens is, you know, a, a pastor um, or pastors kind of lead the church and then when they move on or they die or whatever, somebody else comes in and the whole kind of direction of the church changes. That's very common and frequent in our day. 
Well, a confession of faith, particularly a historic confession of faith, not one that the pastor himself or the elders write themselves, which is, I think, well, I, I, that, it's hard for me to get to, to understand kind of the, the hubris, the pride of that, to think that the pastors themselves can or ought to write their own confession of faith. Um, uh, the, the, the matters of the church are far bigger than even in one church or even one uh, set of elders or one elder obviously can articulate in and of himself. Nevertheless, you get the point what I'm trying to say. Um, a standard in the church so that the church can, can um, be protected in the present but also in the future as well. Um, a standard for formal interchurch communion. So we know who it is that we can lend our time and resources and prayers and help with for the greater cause of the gospel. Uh, A means of preserving and passing down the faith from officer to officer, generation to generation. So that, um, again, the church doesn't rise and fall with its leaders and what they believe. We're pointing back 300 years and saying this is the standard that has lasted this long. This standard is going to continue, Lord willing, for another 300 years or 600 years or 1,000 years. Um, And then we looked at where is this found in Scripture and we covered these Scriptures right here. Exodus 12, Deuteronomy 6, Romans 10, 1 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 1.13 I think is most specific. Paul tells Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. There is a pattern there. That is the the pattern of sound words is what our confession is. And so we see basis in Scripture for formulating a confession and following it. Not just holding and repeating to the bare words of Scripture alone. All right. That was review. review. So if you want to, you know... Learn more about that, then you can uh, refer you to Sermon Audio and the, uh, uh, the session from last week. Today, I want to give you kind of a, just an introduction to the confession. Um, and I want to kind of articulate how we're going to approach it. Uh, I want to give you some historical background. And then if we have time, I don't know if we have time. It's not really that important because we'll be returning to it. But I'm going to just provide a brief outline of the 32 chapters of our confession. So, um, I want to begin with a question. How do we approach the confession? That's kind of the question I want you to think about. How do we approach it? Number uh, five, uh, question and answer five of our Baptist Catechism, affirms that Everyone is commanded and exhorted to read, hear, and understand the Holy Scriptures. That's kind of uh, a, a duty we have as Christians, right? To know the Holy Scriptures. The Catechism follows up with number six, what things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures? Like if we were to summarize, what does the Scripture teach us? What's in them? What do they say? It answers that the Holy Scriptures chiefly contain what man ought to believe concerning God and what duty God requires 
of us. Those kind of central, those are the two central things captured, contained in the Bible. What we're to believe and how we are to live. So, this teaches us, I believe this question teaches us how to read Scripture. How to approach Scripture. What man ought to believe and what duty God requires of us. So, the question I have for you is this hits at the indicative imperative designation. Probably heard me think about, uh, talk about before. Indicative imperative. Um, who understands what that is? What is? What do I mean when I talk about the indicative and the imperative? Command, which is an imperative. What's an indicative? That's the hand chandler. Yes. So indicative is a statement of, I don't know, maybe think of it like a statement of fact or a statement of truth. And the imperative is then the command that follows it. Um, As Americans, you have the right to vote. So get out there and vote. Right? There's a statement of truth, a fact of reality. Not a command for what you should do, but a statement that enables you to do something. The indicative and then the imperative. What I'm getting at here is this, again, what we believe and then what duty God requires of us. And this is how we are to approach Scripture. What God has done for us is the basis upon which we then respond to Him. Doctrine, theology, comes first and then practice obedience, or orthodoxy and orthopraxy, if you want to use the technical terms. I mean, you know this, you know this from our our liturgy on Sunday mornings. We have a call to worship. God is the one who initiates He created us, right? He called us into existence Uh, because of His act that precedes our own, then we respond to Him. We respond as His creatures. He redeemed us, so we respond as His children. We love Him because He first loved us. I can see this in the epistles as well. You know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, they all start with two or three chapters of indicative. This is what God has done, God has done, God has done, God has done. Before then, the the tail end of each epistle goes to how we are to respond. So, in fact, Romans is 11 chapters of what God has done until chapter 12, it all changes. In view of God's mercies, now offer yourselves as a living sacrifice which is your spiritual worship. So what I'm getting at is, okay, this is how we read Scripture. And I'm getting at 
kind of how we are to approach the confession as well. So let me put it this way. How would you respond if I asked you the question, what is more important, Christian doctrine or Christian practice? How would you respond? I'm sorry, what? Two parts of the same thing. Two parts of the same thing. Chandler? I wouldn't say one is necessarily more important, but there's one thing that does Okay. Neither is more important, but one does take precedence. Kim? Yeah, I think all three of you are right. All three of you are right. You can't really ask, answer that question most specifically because they're both important. You can't deny, for example, um, I don't know, again, the Trinity or the deity of Christ and be a Christian, but you can't live an unrepentant, sinful life and be a Christian either. They're both equally important, but there is a primacy, as Kim said, to doctrine. A primacy, not a primacy of more important, but an order, because right living flows out of right doctrine. Right living, excuse me, right doctrine is the basis for right living. Any... um, Muslim or Jehovah Witness or Mormon or atheist can get the practice right. But we know, of course, that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And we know that true God-honoring good deeds come from a heart of faith done out of gratitude for the glory of God. It's not just the end itself. Right? Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. God doesn't care about your good works in the sense that He doesn't need anything from you. That's not primarily why He saved you, just in the sense of, well, I need people to do good things for me to accomplish my purposes. No. So, when we approach Scripture, we've got to acknowledge, for example, that Scripture is not a behavioral manual. Um, scripture is not written to give us what we are to do in what we are uh, in, in every kind of life situation, right? In fact, most of the questions you struggle with, not struggle with, or are faced with on day to day life, um, are not detailed in Scripture. You know, I've, I've used this analogy before, but rarely do you ever wake up one morning and think, "Hmm, I wonder if I should kill my neighbor today." Well, let me run to the Bible and figure that out. No, 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 the questions in life that, that you're most frequently faced with, you know, are questions that call for, okay, should I watch this movie or should I not watch this movie? Should I take this drug or this substance? Should I marry this person? Should I attend this church? Should I hang out with these friends? 
These are questions that are not specified in Scripture. You're not going to open your Bible and find the answer to these questions. That's why the Bible calls for wisdom. It calls us to cultivate wisdom. It calls us to treasure wisdom. And the Bible, far from giving us a behavioral manual on how we are to believe, uh, uh, act in every area of life, It gives us principles upon which we then learn to mimic, to walk in the image of God. We learn to live in light of who God is and what He's done in a way that pleases Him. My point in this, Rob? This this really takes redemption out of our sphere of what we do puts it back on the cross, right? On, on Christ, what He has done, what God has done to save us, as far as bringing us out of death and into life, instead of having a manual whereby we might please God one day, as far as maybe in a legalistic manner. Would you say that's, that's pretty accurate? Yeah, absolutely, and it's such a danger to get caught up so much in what we do all the time, um, because that's not the emphasis of Scripture. Um, and, and again, I think even, even like looking at what the New Testament calls us to, it's all about virtue. We get caught up on the externals, which is the law is external. But this life of the Spirit is virtue. How do you respond to your enemies? What is your perspective on, on glory, pride, right? Self, selflessness, selfishness. Right? Pure words, pure thoughts, um, humility. That's the emphasis in, in the New Testament. And that flows out of our communion and union with Christ rather than a list of rules or law which we do, which is what I believe you're getting at there. Yeah, but my point, go ahead. Well, and you wouldn't say that law is not important, right? Yeah. Yes. Equally important. Right. right? You cannot live unrepentantly and be a Christian. Right. Faith without works is dead. Yeah. But you can't believe the wrong things and be a Christian either. But there's a primacy because belief always comes before behavior. Which, of course, is the ministry of the church is what I'm getting at. The ministry of the church is to instill in you, not to tell you everything, how you ought to live your life. That's not our job. That's your job. My, my job as a pastor is not to control, you know, unless there's blatant sense, not to control how people dress or what music you listen to or what movies you watch or, um, you know, all of those things. Um, that's your job. That's not our job. We're not babysitters. The church's ministry is to teach doctrine. And to emphasize the primacy of theology which leads to proper behavior. And that's why a confession of faith, and what the point I'm getting at here 
is that confession of faith is a theological reading of Scripture. It is, it is the source of our belief in preaching and teaching here. And you will look through it and you will find, you will not find an emphasis on the details, the finer details of law. How you are to live. What you find is the truth that then leads to how you are to live. So it's a theological reading of Scripture. That's the summary of the confession. Because doctrine is primary. It is, uh, um, it is what God has revealed about Himself that we are to believe in order that we might obey. You can't study the doctrine, excuse me, the Bible without doctrine. I love R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, he said one time, you know, people say, oh, I just, I just love Jesus Christ, I just want, I just believe in Jesus Christ. And R.C. Sproul, I heard him say one time, he said, look, Christ is not his last name. You know, in the first century, you couldn't, like, take a stroll through the neighborhoods of Nazareth and find a mailbox with the name Christ on it, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Christ is a theological designation. Messiah. That's theology. That's what you believe. Theology touches everything in Scripture that we read, that we understand. Theology, um, for example, is that Christ died, that's a historical fact, but not just that He died, but that He died for our sins and was raised for our justification. That's theology. And the response is, now believe and you will be saved. Jason. Rephrase that question, please. Well, you could come in with presuppositions and ideas and then force the Bible into that grid. Yeah. How do you allow Scripture to speak for itself and to refine your doctrine, which is the life of every Christian, right? Growing, growing, and learning. Yeah. And it's good to be challenged by things in the Word to push back, things you might bring to it. So we're not, you know, face of Jesus. Yeah. Well, there's always an interplay between. Um, those two things. We all bring presuppositions to the Bible. We cannot escape them, ever. Every single person. Every single generation. Yes, but this also pushes us back on dependence upon the mercy and the Spirit of God. Lord, open my eyes to my faulty presuppositions. I think the danger is when we deny that we have presuppositions. I think the danger is when we deny that we act as if we don't bring theological baggage and read that into the text. Because we all do. But that, again, it's the, the study of scriptures is, is humility and depends upon the Spirit. Chandler? Not according to the rules of Christ. 
Yeah, I think that, that's good. I think because the, the importance is reading Scripture alongside the church. And that's where I think us Americans have really gone off the rails. We, we read Scripture as an individual. Rise in triumph of the modern self. But Scripture presupposes and assumes that we are reading the Bible alongside the church in communion with the church. And that means not just our church now, but our church 2,000 years ago. That's how we are delivered in some sense from our presuppositions. One way in which that we read it in conversation with the church. So, the confession summarizes the core doctrines of the faith as revealed in Scripture. It's a summary of what we ought to believe. It takes God's acts and interprets them theologically that that we might properly respond. So that's our approach. And again, I, I say all that to you just to emphasize why what you find in the confession is doctrine and not a lot of law or practice. That's not its goal, that's not its purpose, because doctrine takes primacy over practice. Not in importance, but in order, because doctrine leads to practice, right? You guys are with me on that, right? All right, so we approach the confession like we approach Scripture. What we are to believe so that we know what duty God requires of us. Um, now I'm going to get to more of the easy stuff here. <laughs> Give you a little bit of background to the confession. Some historical background. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'll give you a broad summary. Um, and yes, I'm definitely switching gears here. But believe it or not, the 1689 London Baptist Confession was not written or published in 1689. <clears throat> I will note as well that you know the, the confession is not um, the um, oldest Baptist confession, but it's the most prominent one. Uh, in fact, if, if you look at the confessions of faith in American Baptist history, almost every single one of them traces its roots to the London Baptist Confession. It has lasted as long as it's lasted for a reason. But it's not, excuse me, it was not written or published in 1689. It was published anonymously in 1677, and then again um, in 1688, and then again in 1699. Easy way to remember that, 1788-99. Does anyone know why it is known as a 1689? I think there's maybe three people in this room who can answer that. (laughs) You're smiling at me. Why, why is it known as the 1689, Cody? Uh, the Act of Toleration. The Act of Toleration. Yes. That's when uh, the, the Parliament passed a law that lifted the ban on basically teaching uh, things like rejecting baptism and things like that. Yes, Act of uh, uh, the, the Nonconformity. Yep, yep. So the historical background is in 1670, and that's, that's the right answer. Um, in 1677, we find the roots of this confession in the Petty France Church in London, 
meeting notes. They met and they decided in one of their business meetings that they needed, that they were going to publish their confession of faith. Uh, that's the only reference we have in 1677. Um, yeah, they met and they agreed that they needed to publish it. And the likely editors of it were Nehemiah Cox and William Kiffin. They published that in 1677, but they published it anonymously. Not even the printer is named, which is pretty uh, unprecedented, because persecution is against the law. Um, there was nonconformity to state religion was not allowed. That's why the Baptists have always been against a mixture of church and states, because Baptists have always been persecuted. It was published in the context of persecution. It was born out of difficulty. It was born out of real, like flesh and blood was at stake here. They're not sitting around their ivory tower just be like, oh yeah, let's publish a confession because we want the world to know what we believe. Oh, they were putting their life on the line. Well, it was published again in 1688 because William and Mary ascended to the throne and they granted freedom of the press to religious dissenters. So the religious dissenters, if you didn't go along with the state religion, you could publish your views. Um, this is different than the Act of Toleration that came a year later, but still, they, they were allowed to publish it, and so that's what they did. And then in 1689, the reason it's called the 1689 Confession is because of the Act of Toleration and they were able to gather in the London Baptist General Assembly and actually sign their names to it. And so we have 40 men representing churches in London who in 1689 met in their General Assembly and they signed this confession, they put their name on it, which is why it's known now as the 1689 Baptist Confession. <clears throat> Even though it's really a 1677 confession. So, um, let me ask you this question. Did they write this all on their own? Did they start from scratch? I said earlier, that's very, very dangerous. You must really think high of yourself if you can write your own confession of faith. Really high of yourself. I think you've got to be foolish in church history to think that you can write your own confession of faith. I'm sorry, I see two hands. Who was first? Chandler? Was that you, Chandler? Yeah, were you asking that? Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're lying on the Western Confession and the Savoy Declaration. Yeah. Well, it's the first one in the Confession. Yeah, absolutely. Great answer. Rob? Well, we could also say that they depended upon the creeds and the language, and obviously the Westminster does as well. But they, they wanted the, uh, the Westminster, uh, the Presbyterians, they wanted it Yeah. That's right. I'm going to get to that. Absolutely. Great answer. Um, they used primary sources. And as has already been mentioned, their sources were the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646, which is still the standard for uh, many Presbyterian denominations in our day, the PCA, the OPC, um, 
one other one. EPC as well. Um, they also um, used the Savoy Declaration in platform of polity. Uh, the Savoy was the Congregationalist movement. So we are Congregational in our church government. So uh, the Congregationalists of that day, they still practiced infant baptism, but they rejected Presbyterianism, which is the form of government. And of course, if you trace that history, eventually the Congregationalists all became Baptists because their church government, they figured out, wait a second, um, if we're ruled by the congregation, we kind of want to make sure those people are converted, not just covenant members. So that fits with credo-baptism and not infant baptism. So the Savoy, though, John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan movement. Um, John Owen actually is the author of the uh, Savoy Declaration, the primary author. Um, and, and that's the conf- London Baptist Confession is, is built off of those two. In fact, it's almost identical, really, to the Westminster, because the Savoy is almost identical to the Westminster. Um, and we think about just uh, the, London, the, the Baptists, they tended to follow the Savoy when they made changes to the Westminster. Uh, but I will say, uh, 11 times, at least 11 times, they restored the original reading of the Westminster from the Savoy. So, um, again, they didn't start from their own. They didn't start from scratch. They did this um, using these two major confessions of their day. Um, Rob kind of already answered this, but why did they use sources? Why did they do this? You know, it's interesting too because the Baptists had already, the first London Baptist confession um, had already been written. Uh, what was that? Uh, 1642? 1644. Yeah, two years before Westminster. You know, they could have just used their previous Baptist confession. In fact, some of the same men signed both documents. In fact, don't ever listen to someone who says that the 1689 and the 1644, or the first and the second, differ because they don't. They use different language, but um, this, the core doctrine is the same. Um, they could have just used their previous... Why did they use the Presbyterians and the Savoy? As Rob kind of said, that they wanted to show their unity. They wanted to show their Catholicity. This was a time when they were slandered. This was a time when they were persecuted. They were seen as heretics. Anabaptist was a dangerous movement. It threatened... It threatened the peace and unity of the church. They were attacked. They were hated. Again, they were seen as crazy. They were seen as heretics. And so what they're doing is they're saying, no, we believe what you believe. Almost entirely. Didn't they have to meet secretly also and kind of uh, clandestinely as far as their, their meeting together and worshiping together? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, again, why it was published anonymously in 1677. Yeah. So, you know, I say this because nowadays you'll hear jokes, you'll hear people say, well, the Baptists are just bumming off the Presbyterians. Like, they can't write their own stuff, so they gotta, they gotta steal from, you know, from the real scholars. Uh, the Baptists cheated. I've heard that before. You know, it's like cheating on a test. But, like, 
it misses the point that, that they, they have the highest respect for the Presbyterians and Congregationalists. And their endeavor was the unity and peace of the church. We believe what you believe, except in these two minor areas. Um, they say this in the uh, preface to the confession. We did readily conclude at best to retain the same order in our present confession. For the most part, without any variation of the terms, we did it in like manner conclude at best to follow their example in making use of the very same words. I love, I love this old phrase. We have no itch to clog religion with new words. Oh, if men would, oh, if men still believe that in our day. We have no itch to clog religion with new words. The itch to clog religion with new words is an epidemic in the church. But we do readily, nowadays, we do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which has been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We stand in the stream of the Catholic Church, small c. So they did this to show their unity and their love for the wider body of Christ. And which is why we have such close communion with our Presbyterian brothers. There's no congregationalists around that anymore. Well, I mean, there, there are a few, but very few and far between. But that's why we have such great unity with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in churches, because we have a pattern of the same words that we share together on almost every issue. Well, that raises the question. we got like five minutes, so we're not going to get to the outline. But um, the question, what's the difference between the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession? What's the difference? Two differences, main differences. Yes, baptism and church polity. Um, Baptism, who are the proper recipients of baptism? And the definition of the church and how it is governed. Westminster believes that, uh, 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 says that baptism is for the infants of believers on the basis of their parents' profession of faith. Presbyterianism is ruled, uh, their definition of the church is believers and their children. That's who the church is. And is to be governed by a local board of governing elders. The Baptists, of course, believe that baptism is for only those who profess faith in Christ. The definition of the church is only those who make a public profession of faith. And that it is governed certainly by elders, uh, but not by what um, is um, not by a, a session or a governing board of overseeing elders outside the local church. So, for example, a Presbyterian church is governed by the elders in the church and the elders of the Presbyterian church across town as well. 
Like, all the local elders govern the church, while the Baptists believe, no, church government is only for the elders in this church. I'm not subject to a Baptist pastor and another congregation. Rob? So every Baptist church is autonomous? They are they're independent, or should, or should be uh, I would not use that language. I think independent um, certainly goes down a dangerous road communicating that we are indep- we're not independent. Um, we're not autonomous. But, but no one gets to tell us in one sense what to do or how to run things. Yes, we're self-governed. We're locally governed. Yes. But we're not autonomous and we're not independent. And our confession gets to that. We have a duty to hold communion with other churches. And that plays a vital role in the peace and prosperity of the greater church. But we are locally governed, yes. No other governing board or session or men can come in here and say, hey, I'm removing this pastor, I'm giving you another pastor. Or I'm saying this or I'm doing that. Those, those decisions are made by us locally. That's the difference. There are other minor differences between the two, but those are the major ones. Anybody know the difference between the Savoy and the London Baptist? It's baptism. Church government, pretty much. Baptism, no. Subject of baptism is where we differ. Uh, a few miscellaneous details, I'm going to wrap up. Um, why are some doctrines addressed and not others? Uh, Because of the historical situation of the day, remember this is a historic document, obviously they are addressing concerns and issues in the church. Um, For example, um, the uh, the Westminster deals in detail with the the matter of divorce, but the London Baptist doesn't deal with divorce. They leave that, again it goes back to what I said earlier about doctrine over practice, uh, or precedes practice. They leave the issue of divorce and remarriage to the churches themselves. They don't deal with it. Um, different circumstances determine whether they address particular topics. That raises a question in our day. Well, well, why are we holding to a 350-year-old confession when we have issues like you know, creation, homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, uh, evolution, um, you know, um, criticism, higher criticism? What? Isn't our confession, this confession, kind of insufficient because it doesn't deal with those? And I would say, I mean, if you ask me personally, yeah, in, in some sense, we, we, we need to address those issues. And that's why, you know, I would favor, I'm not saying that it would be wrong to rewrite uh, and write another confession. I think that's hard to do because there was a unity and a level of scholarship then that does not exist in our day. And, you know, if you look at the Westminster and all the years they spent writing it and all the scholars from every, all these various uh, theological camps come together for years and hammer that out, you just can't repeat that in our day. Um, it could be done, but it's not, not in our day, not right now. So, yeah, we could rewrite a confession if we were able to get everyone together from all across the world and spend four years writing a confession, but that's just not going to happen. Plus, the level of scholarship, again, uh, <laughs> we're a lot dumber now than we were then, or than people were then. Anyway, my point is this. If, um, if you want to write a confession, 
excuse me, you want to address these other issues, there are ways of doing it with position papers and other statements that come alongside the confession, which is what we've seen happen in many cases. A um, couple things, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap up. Proof text, this is a big, big question that uh, I often am asked. If you're looking at a doctrine and you're reading it, and you're reading the confession, and it has all these scripture references under, and you start to trace those, all the time people will be like, that verse does not support what they said. What's going on here? It's because we approach proof text differently than they did. They're not saying this passage, this, this text proves this point. What they are doing is they are pointing the reader back to the commentaries and sermons on those passages from that day. That's why I study the original sources is so important. You have to pull out Matthew Poole's commentary on the Bible, John Trapp's commentary on the Bible, Puritan commentaries on the Bible. That's, they're pointing you to that when you go to a proof text. And they're saying, there's a theological nugget here that supports this, and you've got to go trace that out. And with that, I'm going to conclude by just giving you resources and... We will, we will be done. Um, you want to study the confession? A couple of books that are very helpful. There's a little book on our back table right now. A toolkit for confessions. Uh, helps for study of the English Puritan confessions of faith. So if you want to study the Savoy, the Westminster, the London Baptist, this is a little book that gives you the primary sources to run to so that you know and study it properly. Um, this book, uh, Jim, James Renahan, it's uh, not out yet. You can buy the PDF right now, but the actual hard copy won't ship until after the first of the year. Uh, Dr. Renahan, my former professor and pastor, is without a doubt the world's greatest scholar on particular Baptist history. Um, and this book is the very best book that's ever been published on the Confession I'm so excited that it's about to come out. It's phenomenal. Uh, there's a commentary by David Dixon on the Westminster. It's, it is a um, contemporary commentary on the Westminster. It was written in the 17th century. And that's really important because he really, and he was part of the assembly, so he knows what was going on. You want to, what are they talking about? Go here and you can figure out the chapters, what they're actually talking about in their day. So, it's a huge resource. It's a phenomenal resource. Commentary in the Westminster. Um, Fesco, uh, one of my former professors, has uh, written a great uh, commentary as well on the Westminster. I recommend that one to you. Um, this is indispensable. It is a dictionary of Latin Greek theological terms by Richard Muller. Um, gets to the scholastic language they're using and is vitally important to understanding some of the language, particularly in the theological proper uh, portion of the confession. And then you'll always want to make sure to have an Oxford English Dictionary uh, if you can afford that or have access to all those volumes because that really helps you understand the words they use and how they're to, to be defined. I don't have time to get to an uh, outline of it, so we'll, we'll jump into that next time. But... Um, Thanks for your attention. I've gone a little bit over, so I'm going to close with prayer. If you've got questions, come and talk to me about it. Let's pray.